Welcome to the Antioch campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church this morning. Let's do all of ourselves a favor today, if we could, and let's set our phones aside, put them on airplane mode, and keep them out only if you need it for your Bible or for note-taking, and then take your Bible, and that's what one of these is. Um, I mean, we don't see them much anymore, but uh, take out your Bible and open them, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 5. We're in a series of messages that we just started last week from the letters of John that will take us through the biggest part of the first half of this year, and and we're going to be challenged every single week from what John writes. So find 1 John chapter 1, and we'll start looking at verse 5 in just a moment. There's a little town in England called Homerook, and every year a tavern there host an event which has become so popular in the United Kingdom that it's televised, and to attend it, it requires paid admission. The name of the contest is The World's Greatest Liar. The World's Greatest Liar. And the reason, the reason that it's held there is because at the first part of the 20th century, there was a tavern owner there who, when he got a pint or five in him, was known for weaving these, these big tales, uh, completely untrue, but they were so entertaining that people began to flock there just to hear the stories, and then it grew into this contest whereby people tell one another lies. It's all in good fun. Uh, apparently, it's hysterical. Uh, I mean, at least to the English, it's hysterical. I don't know if it would be to us. Um, and, and it's really kind of become a fun little thing for them to do. However, most of the time, lies are far from funny. In fact, we don't tell them generally to make other people laugh. We tell them for their purpose, subterfuge, either to convince someone that we're speaking to that something is not true, and sometimes to convince ourselves that something is not true. And usually those lies that we tell ourselves to convince ourselves that something isn't true are of a spiritual nature. And because those lies that we tell ourselves are of a spiritual nature more often than not, they are the most dangerous because they have eternal consequences. Today as we really start to get into the meat after last week's introduction of First John, a letter that John has written to churches he oversees. We're going to begin to see how he was trying at the outset of his book to address lies that people were telling themselves in order to convince themselves that something about their spiritual life was true when it really wasn't at all. The best way to do this is to go through it verse by verse, and normally um, about halfway through a message, you're used to me saying, okay, now we're going to fill in our blanks, all right? Uh, Many of you all are blank filler-inners, good for you. I can't do it. I provide them for you. I can't do it. But I want to warn you today, we're not going to fill out the blanks until the very end, and it's going to be quick. And I tell you that because I don't want you to panic that um, we're going to be here till like 5 o'clock tonight if you're not filling these things in. So, so know that we're going to get to them, but right now let's just journey through God's Word together. Look at verse 5. John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Now remember, he opens up the book by saying, I'm an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. 
I have seen him with my eyes, I have touched him with my hands, and I have heard him with my ears. And he came, and he said this in the first four verses, he came to bear the message of eternal life. And now what he is doing is beginning to unpack the details of that eternal life message. This is the message we had heard from him and proclaimed to you. And this is a fundamental truth of God that he's going to articulate at the front end of his message to these churches. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, John uses dark light a lot. In fact, in his reflection of the life of Christ known as the Gospel of John, he lets us know that the light was in the Word. The Word is his uh, term for Jesus in John chapter 1. The light was in the Word, and that, that, that light was the life of men. It's his way of saying that, that Jesus contained in himself both the means to and the message for eternal life. And that eternal life, light, was offered, shown to the entire world. So he uses it that way some. But here he's using it in an ethical sense. And here's what I mean. When he says that God is light, he is saying God is absolute holiness. He is absolutely pure in his character. And in him is no darkness, no sin, no deviation from his character at all. So that's a very simple kind of, of, of de declarative statement about God. God is absolutely holy, and in him there is no sin at all. And having made that declarative statement, he says this in verse 6. If we say... We have fellowship with him, this God who is light, this God who is holy, and in him there is no darkness, no sin at all. If we, if we say we have fellowship with him, a relationship with him, with him, while we walk in darkness, now keep in mind, that means while we walk or live a life that is characterized by our sin, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Here's the thing. John knew that almost everyone to whom he was writing would affirm verse 5 as being true. Of course, God is holy and in him there is no sin whatsoever. But he is now raising the specter of those that were listening to his words, probably being read to the church, whose lives were not characterized by the pursuit of that holiness. In fact, their lives were actually characterized by sin. And he is saying that if you are a person who claims a relationship with a God of absolute holiness and your life is characterized by what he says does not measure up to his standards, you are telling yourself a lie. You do not practice the truth and his life, his light, salvation, is not in you. Now, now, we would probably, most of us, never say outright that our lives have no sin in them. Most of us are going to be self-aware enough to recognize that our lives in many different ways fall short of God's glorious standard. We stub our toe every now and then morally, so to speak. But there are tendencies in every generation of believers... To look at a, 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 an area of life that 
either we see going on in culture or that we are entertaining ourselves and want to go a different way from what God clearly says in his word. And, and when we do that, the only way that we can navigate it and still claim fellowship with God is to tell ourselves, well, that must not be a sin anymore. And so what we wind up doing is redefining what sin is so that it's not sin anymore and therefore we can claim fellowship with God. That's how we're able to unravel that that riddle in our lives. We just redefine sin. And, and, and followers of Jesus in every generation have done it. But we, of course, know where the battleground is right now in our world on the redefinition of sin. It has to do with the idea of sexual ethics, sexual morality. We live in a world where what has always been accepted as being sinful is being redefined so that it's no longer sinful, so that we can say, I practice this particular kind of sin, but I can still be in fellowship with God. Now, we, we tend to think um, that is, is not our fault in the church. Now, that's not something that we have done. We have been standing strong against it. Let me, let me wake you up. No, we have not. Because on our own, as evangelical Christians, we redefined sexual morality 50, 60 years ago. And you know how? By turning a blind eye to what is called no-fault divorce. The, the biblical understanding of, of divorce is quite plain. It is primarily a protection for women in a world in which they had zero voice whatsoever and that it is to be undertaken only in the most extreme of circumstances. And yet what we began to do 50, 60 years ago is begin to say that I could divorce because, you know what, God wants me to be happy. What are we doing? We're redefining sin in the, in the realm of sexual ethics, being exclusive sexually with one partner, so that we can do what we want to and still claim fellowship with God. This is what these people were doing in ways. They were redefining what sin was and saying, I am still able to be in fellowship with God even though you see this in my life because in some way this really isn't sin anymore. They're redefining darkness so that they can claim to walk in light. Now, in contrast, you have this in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, in other words, if if we are living lives that are characterized by a pursuit of holiness in, in, in the way that God has shown it to us as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. So what he's saying, he's saying, how can we know that, that we are Christians by our common pursuit of holiness as measured and, and, and objectified by God? We have fellowship with one another, and he says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. So we know that we are actually of God if we remain con um, convicted to, to call sin, sin, and repent of it when it shows up in our lives. Otherwise, if our lives are defined by something that we're just rewriting the rules for, there's no reason to believe that we're a sincere follower of Jesus. So the first issue he addresses is those who claim fellowship with God while ignoring sin in their lives in an area or maybe many areas all together. And now he moves on to issue number two he wants to address. He says, if we say we have no sin, 
We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Now, in, in the first four verses of 1 John, he has hinted that there were people in the church who were claiming to have fellowship with God, but they didn't need Jesus for it. He, he doesn't really explain that in detail, but he hints at it. People who believe that they could have a relationship with God without Jesus. Last, last week, the term we used for it is a kind of a Christless Christianity. And here, he begins to, to explain why that is true with certain people in the church to whom he was writing. He, he says, there are, there are some in your midst who claim they have no sin. Now, that sounds outrageous to us. People who claim to have no sin at all. But more likely, they were doing something that you and I tend to do when it comes to our understanding of sin. We vastly underestimate its effects and begin to consider ourselves good or bad, holy or wicked, on the basis of how we measure up with some standard we create in our lives or how other people measure up, how we measure up against other people. It goes something like this. I'm not a bad person. I used to be bad. I used to do things that, that shamed me. But through the the institution of, a, of some habits and just growing up, that's language I hear a lot, just simply by growing up, um, I, I, don't, I don't do that anymore. I'm not a sinner anymore. Or, or more likely what happens is you have people who say, well, if you look at the, the totality of my life, I've done more good things than bad things. So, so I'm a good person. Yeah, I, I, I sin, but I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner. So I, I've done more good things than bad things, and so I'm a good person. Neither one of those people, people who, who say, I used to be a sinner, but I overcame it through trying hard, or people who say, on a whole scale of good, bad, um, I'm better than not, neither, neither one of those people have fully appreciated what sin really does. And so they're telling themselves a lie about their sin, essentially saying, um, I don't need a Savior, like other people might need a Savior. But in verse 9, in verse 9, this wonderful verse, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's saying, all of us need a Savior, and, and all of us have the capacity to experience that Savior because God has universally proclaimed His Son, Jesus Christ, as the means by which our sin can be forgiven. We can, we can find forgiveness. We can have relationship with God. But you first have to admit that you need a Savior. That, that you don't just sin, you're a sinner. So that's... That's an issue he deals with. So, so he's, he's dealt with this issue of people who have claimed fellowship with God while living an unrepentant, sinful life. Uh, he's dealt with the issue of claiming fellowship with God um, by people who really don't think of themselves as sinners and therefore don't need Jesus. The next thing, issue he deals with is kind of an unholy marriage between those first two issues. It comes in the first part of verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. Why does he feel compelled to write that? Because of verse 9 of, of 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get out of jail free. And so if I get out of jail free, I can do what I want. Let me tell you an open family secret. Julie's brother, my brother-in-law, is a police officer. Jeremy, he, he's a police officer in Aurora, Colorado. Great guy um, and, and, and serves his community well as a police officer. Jeremy, though, is not the world's best driver. And the reason he's not the world's best driver is because he drives fast enough that flecks of paint come off the car while, while, he, while he was driving. And sometimes one of Kansas's finest or Colorado's finest or New Mexico's finest will see him breaking the sound barrier going down the interstate and say, I've got to pull that guy over. And so they do. And when they do, this thing happens. Where are you going? Well, I was going so-and-so. All right. And when he pulls out his, his wallet, there's a badge in there. And the guy will say, eh, slow it down. Okay. <laughs> See, he's got a badge that lets people more often than not say, please, you know, just try to keep it under 1,000 miles an hour. I think sometimes we treat verse 9 as our spiritual badge. God flags us for a transgression, and we open up our Bible and say this. So, back to the question, why is John writing, I say this to you so you won't sin? Because he understood that we can pervert grace into turning it into a license for sin. And while we may not live lives that are unholy at its core by redefining sin in some way, people who have a warped understanding of grace can feel very, very comfortable being loose on the edges and think, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, so I can get away with that. It's no secret in modern church life that congregations' attitudes towards alcohol is changing as conservative scholarship is now admitting that um, the, the Bible doesn't have an outright prohibition against alcohol, but what that is turning into in some people's lives is saying it's okay for me to get buzzed with my friends on the weekends. The Bible may not have an outright prohibition against alcohol and leave that to a matter of conscious and personal choice, but it does have an outright prohibition against drunkenness, and people are saying, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, it's okay if I get buzzed. Or people say it's okay if I let my language be loose on the ends, because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, so I can say what I want to. Or people take occasional forays into porn, saying, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, um, and it's okay for me to do this to blow off steam. And all because John has told us that we're forgiven of all unrighteousness if we confess it and we treat it like a badge. And we're not taking sin seriously anymore 
and therefore we're trivializing what forgiveness really is. So three issues that he's dealt with so far, claiming fellowship with God by redefining sin, claiming fellowship with God by claiming we aren't really a sinner, claiming fellowship with God by trivializing sin. But there's one more. Look at the last part of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John knew that he was writing people who were taking this so seriously and so feeling the weight and the gravity of sin and looking at their lives and assessing it in terms of the holy character of God and they were saying, I cannot be saved. I'm too messed up. I'm too broken. I I just, I can't be saved. And what John is saying to them, if that is you and you're listening to my words, you need to understand that there is no sin, regardless of how hidden it might be, regardless of how heinous it might be, that cannot be taken care of by the all-sufficient blood of Jesus. He uses the word propitiation. It's not a word that we use in modern American life anymore at all. But it's a word, if you look it up in your English dictionaries, that, that means to appease or to satisfy. So what he's saying here is that the blood of Jesus has appeased or satisfied God the Father for our sins. The wrath of God is against our sin. That's what Romans chapter 1 tells us. The wrath of God is against our sin. But when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to satisfy completely God's wrath against sin and therefore there is nothing left of God to give me as a follower of Jesus but his love and his blessing. So if you think that your sin is too much for God, think again. That's what he's telling his people. Which now leads us to the lies that we tell ourselves as we think about what we've learned and look back at our passage today. Here they are in short order. First, lie one. This isn't sin. This isn't sin. I have fellowship with God even though I live a life that is directly contradicted in his words, but those were written in ancient times and these are modern times and that used to be a sin. It's not a sin anymore or I deserve this in some way. This isn't sin. Lie two, I don't sin. Not in the sense that we legitimately never sin, but we don't believe ourselves to be sinners. That, that we, we're good enough that there's really no real harm done to our relationship with God. I don't sin. Lie three, first part of verse one, I'm free to sin. I have my badge. I can get out of this. It's not a problem. Because of grace, I can do pretty much whatever I want. I'm free to sin. Lie four, not my sin. I mean, maybe garden variety sins, but you don't know what I've done. No one knows what I've done. I hope no one finds out what I've done. And, and that just can't be forgiven. 
not my sin. Now to be clear, to be clear to all three of these sins, John is not saying to us, or excuse me, all four of these lies, John is not saying to us, if you're living in that lie, it is keeping your relationship from God, with God, from being what it could be. He's not saying that. He's saying if you have institutionalized these lies in your life, if you are characterized by the lies of this isn't sin, I don't sin, I'm free to sin, or not my sin, then you have no relationship with God at all. At all. If we are justifying a lifestyle, sexual or otherwise, that is contrary to God's truth as not being sin, John is saying to us we have no relationship with God. If we are claiming that our moral good outweighs our moral bad and earns us God's favor so that we aren't really sinners, we're not trusting in Jesus finally to save us, and we have, John says, no relationship with God. If, if we are claiming that grace means that a lifestyle of being comfortable with sin on the edges of our lives is no big deal, John is saying to us, we have no relationship with God. And if we think our sin is too big for the cross of Jesus Christ, John is saying, we have no relationship with God. Those are hard words. I understand that they are, they are hard words and maybe a bit shocking because I think sometimes John is mischaracterized as being this kind of hippy-dippy love dude, you know? He, he says things to us that make us love God, you know, in, in a superficial way more. John is the love apostle. But he's showing us, I love you enough to not let you believe a lie. And I don't love you at all if I see you lying to yourself about a relationship with God that really doesn't exist because of this, 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 and this. We can see that. What he instead does is he loves us enough to tell us the truth so that we can see the light. The loudest words he wants us to hear today are not the lies. The loudest words he wants us to hear are those found in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't care what load of sin you carried into this place today. It is no match for the cross of Jesus. And that's what John's screaming to us today. That God has, has given you so much more than the lie can give you. Momentary satisfaction in life because you're able to live guilt-free about something God's Word speaks against. He's able to give you so much more than that kind of superficial happiness in life. He's able to give you a transcendent joy that he paid for with his own blood. 
And that outweighs anything, anything that we're wanting to hang on to here today. Stop all of us believing lies and embrace the life and the light of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.